Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves. Here at the Good Dog Pod, we are all about supporting dog breeders and responsible dog ownership. We provide dog lovers with the latest updates in canine health and veterinary care, animal legislation and legal advocacy, canine training and behavior science, and dog breeding practices. Subscribe and join our mission today to help give our dogs the world they deserve. Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I've got a really fun thing for us to do today. We are going to sort of go back to school. Fall's here, and there's some really cool things that we can do with our dogs. And these events are not just for purebred dogs. Anybody can compete in most of these. And I think that this is a great way for us to think about staying engaged with our dogs once school is ongoing and kids are not at home all the time and things are crazy. Sometimes we forget to find time for our dogs. And so I just thought this would be a great way for people to think about fun things they could do with their dogs. So our first event that we're going to talk about is Barn Hunt. And this is a conversation I had with the founder of this sport named Robin Nuttall. And all of the fun things that you can do with Barn Hunt and how to get started and what all it entails. Robin Nuttall is the founder and owner of the Barn Hunt Association. And this is a sport that is just taken off like wildfire the American Kennel Club dogs, but it is a sport that is available to dogs who are outside the American Kennel Club. Is that correct, Robin? That's correct. Hi, Laura. Nice to talk to you. Great. So glad you could join us. The important thing that people need to understand about Barn Hunt is that every decision that I make about Barn Hunt, all of the rules, everything goes back to the fact that first and foremost, this sport is a test of working instinct for vermin hunting dogs. Now, we are thrilled that all dogs of all sizes and all types have excelled in the sport and people love it and we welcome those dogs. McBreeds are welcome. We don't care what you've got. Please bring it. And so many dogs have so much fun with it. But when we get down to the core of the sport and why it was created and why we make the rules that we do, it is based on testing working instinct. It is an independent organization. It is not an AKC sport. Novice and above titles are recognized by the AKC. They're recognized by the UKC, and they are also recognized by the Canadian Kennel Club. And all the organizations have been very supportive. I do have to say that the American Kennel Club has been amazing and has really helped contribute to the success of the sport through their support and endorsement. So I'm very grateful to the AKC for everything that they have done for us. Very, very cool. So let's talk about what do you do in Barnhead? I mean, I have friends who participate, and I know there's rats, and I know there's hay, and tubes, and that's what I got. So, there are different levels to barn hunt, levels of difficulty, and you progress up through the levels just like you would through any performance sport. 
I do want to, before I even talk about it, just make sure that our audience knows that one of the tenets of the sport when I was starting it was that we wanted to make sure that the rats that we use, and we do use real rats, that the rats that we use were not harmed in the sport. So we have a tremendous amount of protection for the rats. They are in very heavy-duty aerated tubes. Rats happen to like small, dark places, so they're actually very happy in the tubes and go right in. And our rats are pet first, and then they work for us a little bit, and then they get lots of treats. So we treat our rats well, but we've got rats in tubes, and then there's always a tunnel. And the tunnel always goes back to the instinct of the sport as well, that part of the sport. Because in real vermin hunting, dogs have to be willing to go into small, dark places after prey. So our tunnel is a little stylized. It's always 18 inches wide by whatever the bale height is tall. So it's not quite as tight for some dogs as others. And for our big dogs, it's a very tight space. But that's why the tunnel is there. Dogs have to execute a climb, which means they have to be willing to put their feet on prickly, stickly stuff which is the straw, gets a little prickly sometimes. At our very basic level, which is called instinct, that is a single pass-fail event. There are three tubes laid out bare. They're actually put into what is called an instinct cradle and secured so the dogs can't knock them around on the ground inside a ring. And one of them has a live rat and bedding in it. And the other one has used bedding. So it smells of rat, but there's no rat in there. Okay. And then the third one is just empty. And you and your dog have a minute to go into the ring. And your dog tells you which one of those three has a rat in it. There's an opportunity for a dog to do a climb in instinct. And there's an opportunity for the dog to tunnel. But they're not required to do so instinct. All that needs to happen is your dog finds the rat. You know what your dog is telling you. The judge does not tell you when the dog has found the rat. You have to understand what your dog's signal is, and you tell the judge, this is the rat. That really basic one is to help people get into the sport. And because I knew it was a new sport, I wanted to do something that would be a nice introduction for people that have never done it before. You know, we have very much become a gateway sport. And what I mean by that is we have a lot of people that try barn hunt that have never done anything at all with their dog ever. They hear about it, they show up. And it's great because I'll tell you that we've had a number of dogs that have started in barn hunt that their owners have been like, oh, this dog sport world is kind of fun. Nice. Maybe I'll try something else. Maybe I'll try obedience. Maybe I'll try rally. I saw that agility equipment. I wonder what all that is about. So we really have had a number of dogs that have started in burn hunt that have gone on to other things. And I tell my judges in my clubs, we're really, really conscious of the fact that as a gateway sport, how we treat our competitors and their dogs and the kind of experience they have has a direct impact impact on whether or not they'll go on to any other dog sport, whether or not they'll keep competing with their dog. Because, you know, I'm sure you know as well as I do Oh yeah. that people who compete with their dogs and train their dogs, they tend to keep their dogs longer. They tend to be happier with their dogs. They're less giving up. So it's an important role. 
It's absolutely huge. And keeping them involved. You know, eventually some of those people say, hey, maybe I'm going to, you know, buy a pretty one and go to the dog show. Maybe I'm going to breed a litter. You know, all of those things that, again, are about keeping purebred dogs relevant in today's society that has become so focused on adopt, don't shop outside of our world. Well, and I agree 100%. And one of the things that I think is important is that we welcome mixed breeds and we want them there. But I think the more that people with mixed breeds and the people with purebreds get together in a congenial, fun atmosphere, and the more they talk to each other, the better things are overall. And they see that purebred people really are not mean, snob, ugly, horrible, terrible people. And they see some of these purebred dogs really excelling and they're like, oh, you know what? Maybe my next dog might be this kind of dog. So I just think it's really important for us to foster that communication and interaction. The very best part of Barn Hunt to me is watching the joy that people get by how much fun their dog is having. The dogs just love this sport and it's just amazing to watch these teams and the bond that gets between the handler and the dog because the handler has learned how to truly observe what their dog is doing and to watch their dog and to connect with their dog. That's the most amazing part of the sport for me. Okay. Our next event that we're going to talk about is dry land mushing. So like canicross and ski during and all of the put a harness on your dog and the dog propels the human events, okay? And you can do these any time of year with snow, without snow, doesn't matter. The whole idea is that they are for all breeds, all types of dogs. And the exercise that the dog gets and the exercise that you get and the conditioning work and all of it is an amazing amount of fun. So this is Chelsea Murray and Chelsea's very competitive in these events and will give you a ton of information about how to get involved. Chelsea Murray here to talk about dry land mushing and dog powered sports on land versus on snow. So This is like so cool because (laughs) I feel like this is something everybody can get out and do, right, Chelsea? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't have to be a super athlete to do it either. There's lots of different ways that you can get involved. Oh, that's super important. Yeah. (laughs) Regardless of dog size or human size or your capability, there are lots of different ways that you can get involved with this sport. I got started initially in dryland mushing sports when I got our first one because, believe it or not, I was a college student. I lived in a townhome, which most people are probably pulling their hair out going, oh my gosh, you owned an Alaska Malamute. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so I was really looking into different ways that I could provide enrichment to his life and keep him mentally mm-hmm. and physically sound so that he was a happy dog living in a condo. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's how I got into... Um, specifically, we got started with bike joring. So canicross is dog-powered running. So think of a sled dogs. Think of the Iditarod or the Yukon Quest where you've got dogs out in front and they're pulling and powering that sled. And it's the same exact concept, but you're running. So they're attached to the human and that's canicross. If you attach them out in front of a bike or a mountain bike, that's called bike joring. 
You can also do it with a scooter. You can do it with carts and rigs. And then you can also do it on cross-country skis, which is ski joining. So lots of different ways, depending on where you live, that you can get involved. Okay, so the part about how you don't have to be a great athlete, <laughs> I'm kind of giggling right now because I guarantee you that if I hooked myself up to my wire hair pointer and said run, <laughs> I'd be dead in about 30 seconds. So I'm not, I think we might have to revise that just a little bit. <laughs> you know, if you're not a big runner, you can walk like this or hike like this. Or if you want to go faster, if your dogs have a need for speed, you can always hook them up to a bicycle or to a scooter. And that way you don't have to physically move quite as fast. They're doing a little bit more of that power. I would say it's relatively new in the U.S. Right. It originally got started as a way to do some cross training for sled dogs, okay. how to keep them in shape and keep them fit when they didn't have snow to kind of work them out on. Okay. Has been very popular in the U.K. for a while and now is kind of making its way over into the U.S., but the U.S. does host a variety of both sanctioned and non-sanctioned events where people go out on scooters, bikes, and canacross runs. So if you look for them, you can find them. So let's talk about the training. How do you do this? How do you train them to run in a straight line, not chase every squirrel that crosses the road, and basically survive this yeah. experience? Yeah. So I will relate it to something that you're probably pretty familiar with, AKC obedience, AKC rally. Right. When you look at the big picture, it looks very smooth, but there's a lot of little things that go into it to make up that big picture. And it's the same thing for mushing sports. So a lot of people are really eager to hook their dog up to the bike. And if you do that without hitting groundwork, it's probably going to be disastrous. That's where I'm going in my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Imagining just hooking up the dog in your house right now. There are some skills that we've got to establish. So let's talk about the skills. Yeah. So the big one that you've brought up a couple times is learning to ignore distractions. Mm -hmm. So we call that on by, and it's similar to what people teach as leave it, but it goes beyond just leaving the item. They have to keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. So it's, I know there's a critter over there. Ignore that. Keep moving straight. Got it. So we teach on by. We also need speed control. <laughs> so in general, kind of the basics are stop, go. But when you get more advanced, we can teach the dog how to slow down, how to speed up so that you can really control their speed. So if we're on a pretty technical mountain bike trail and we start going downhill, I'm probably going to proactively ask my dog to slow down a little bit yeah. so that we don't crash Die. downhill. Yeah, okay. So speed control is important. Another big one is teaching dogs how to put pressure into the line. Oh, now, for a lot of dogs, this comes naturally. You know, you think of sled dogs, Malamutes, Huskies. For a lot of those dogs, you put them in harness and they're good to go. Mm -hmm. And that's even true for some non-stereotypical mushing breeds. Mm -hmm. But for some dogs, we've done so much loose leash, <laughs> right. Right? right? That they're like, wait, you want me to do what now? <laughs> <laughs> so for some dogs, we have to even go to the basics of, high pressure in this harness, this specific one is a good thing, and then teach them how to move out in front of the bike. So those are kind of our starting places. Mm -hmm. Depending on what kind of trails you run or bike on, you might need directions too. So that's a pretty standard skill that we teach how to turn right, how to turn left, how to keep going straight. It doesn't cost a fortune to get into this. It's going to cost some time investment for training, mm -hmm. but it doesn't cost a lot to get started in it, which I really like because then that opens up the gates for a lot of people to enjoy this. 
you know, and based on where you live and how right. active you are, this is something that possibly you guys could be doing all year round, or if not, most of the year. Okay. And finally, this is a really fun thing for any dog from Chihuahua to Great Dane. Scent work. So I'm talking with John Sarabia, who's a retired military canine trainer and handler. And he teaches dogs how to do this work all the time. And what a blast. You guys are going to love this. The cliff note version of this is that there is no difference in what these pet dogs are doing on the weekends and competitions and going to classes throughout the week. There's no difference between that and what military dogs and police dogs, search and rescue, all these other scent detector dogs are doing. The application is basically the same. Target odors are just different. Okay. And so on what I've been reading, what I have come to understand, they're using basically essential oils, right? Different smells of what spices, isn't it? Right. That's exactly what it is. They're using essential oils and, you know, there are several different organizations. The AKC has, has adopted its own oils and the other organizations have their own. But essentially, when it comes to the trial, there are two drops of oil placed on a Q-tip or a cotton ball swab and then hidden in whatever environment that actual element is. And the dog and the handler have to enter that search area and go find it, communicate to each other, and then back to the judge. This is actually where they believe that target odor is. Right. So the dogs can be trained to locate, if you will, or identify any specific odor, any particular scent, correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have dogs in the prison system that detect cell phones. Okay, there you go. (laughs) You know, we literally, when you say we can teach them to find anything, We can literally do that. It's just a matter of taking that target odor, whatever it is you're looking for, and placing a value on it that normally wouldn't be there in an everyday circumstance. If you put three dog trainers in a room, two of them are going to tell you the other one's wrong. So this is John's method of training. This is not, you know, Denise Fenzi has her online academy. Andrew Ramsey has his own version of it. And we're going to talk to a couple other folks. So don't worry. I want to make sure that we have a variety of of opportunities for people to find whatever it is that will trigger their encouragement. Absolutely. So what I do is I start a dog out and it doesn't matter what age they are. I start them out And I try to trigger that hunt drive, that want to go find and play with and seek things out. I essentially take a couple cardboard boxes, fold the tops into where it's completely open, tall enough that the dog can get into very easily for the, you know, the short dogs, the floppy ear dogs. They can get into those boxes easily without a lot of interaction with the box initially. Okay. Drop a treat in there and let the dog go find it. And then continue to do that as the dog is following the treat into the box. And every time the dog's head goes in a box, I throw a treat in another box. So when the dog goes and looks in that box, I throw another one into a different box to where every time the dog's head goes in a box, oh, hey, look, I just heard that there's something else in this other box. Let me go look. So it encourages them to continue to hunt. And once they start getting that game of hide and seek of the treat, you know, go find it, I start changing the va- the variables on them. I start shuffling boxes. I'll put one treat in a box and, you know, spread them around the room and the dog has to go actively seek that box out for the only one that has the treat in it. And okay. 
once I get to that level, you know, this is a cliff note version. This is, you know, over the right, span of right. several training sessions. But then I start creating puzzles. I stack boxes. I put a box inside of a box. So the dog has to actually manipulate the environment like a puzzle toy, stick its head in the box, flip it open to flip another box out to get to the treat that's underneath, you know, two mm-hmm. boxes or mm-hmm. one that's two tiers higher than ground level. So we really get the dog wanting, motivated, thinking, and really actively involved in the environment that they're working in. The food-motivated dogs are the easiest, and in my opinion, food is the way to go in the sport world because as you get higher in the classes, as you go through, you have to find multiple hides within a certain area. So my personal preference is to use food all the way through as a reward for each find. Rather than, here's a ball, here's a toy, you want to play tug with me, now I have to get it back, refocus you, and start searching all over again. Right. It's a sport, we're wasting time because there are time parameters put on it, so I would rather use food than a toy. So in the novice level, you've got these five elements, if you will. The handler discrimination is just that. Anybody that's done utility has kind of started this already. The dog is required to go out and find your scent hidden in the novice glass in what we call containers. It's in a cardboard box that's closed. You have either a glove, a cotton glove or a cotton sock or something that has your scent on it. And it's put into a box along with 10 other containers, 10 other boxes, two rows of five. Okay. And me as a judge in that element, I also put my scent in one of the boxes. You bring your dog to the starting line. You have a time limit, uh, which is two minutes to go in and search these 10 boxes. Your dog needs to communicate to you that, hey, mom, this is you. You're in this box right here. And it's not the judge and it's there's mm-hmm. none of the other worldly environments are, are valuable, but this is you. And then at that point, you have to understand what your dog's telling you and then let me, the judge, know, alert, this is the box. And, go, and hopefully we give you a thumbs up. You reward your dog and you go on to the next element. I've seen every breed on this planet do nose work so far, from pugs, French bulldogs, Vichlas, and Weimariners. I competed with my Rottweiler. I mean, there are every breed out there. It's a blast. (laughs) All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed some of our back-to-school opportunities. And I really hope that you'll take a minute to think about the great stuff that you and your dog can do together and... Find a way to give them a little bit of me time. All right. Y'all have a great day. Good Dog is a secure online community that advocates for dog breeders, educates the public, helps informed puppy buyers connect directly with certified good breeders, and promotes responsible dog ownership. Good Dog is offering its good breeders special advanced access to the video recordings and transcripts for the full three-part Q&A webinar series with Dr. Hutchinson. All you have to do is sign up as a breeder at gooddog.com slash join. That is g-o-o-d-d-o-g dot com slash join. Or click the link in the show notes.